you, Beverly, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's uh, Josh Lewis. I'm on the ministry team here, and I'm often at this time of morning up at uh, our 9.30 congregation, or would have probably had a couple of biscuits and a coffee by now, actually, so um, I'll push through, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I haven't actually been here for a while, and probably um, since last time I've been here at 10.30, we've added another member to our family. I call him... Rusty McBeard III, and uh, he is gaining weight and very healthy. Uh, young eight-week-old Toby is also well. Um, we're going to uh, begin uh, this morning uh, with a bit of a shocking image uh, that I'd like to share with you. It's uh, a picture of someone called Aaron cutting off his own arm. Okay, that sounds like a very foolish thing to do. Until you move your frame of reference out a little bit, and you realize that Aaron's arm is pinned under a boulder and he's been there for five days, 127 hours. And cutting off his arm is actually his, his ticket to survival. It's the only hope. See, if you have a different frame of reference, it sometimes changes if something looks sensible or foolish. We had a, a less extreme example earlier in our all-age spot. Uh, with uh, the present and uh, whether that's a good thing to open a present or not. Um, and isn't uh, young Tamar uh, cute? That was nice to see. Uh, but uh, the frame of reference is really important. Uh, David uh, in Psalm 14 writes this. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? So the Bible defines foolishness as living without reference to God. It's not just an intellectual thing. You can believe that God exists in your mind, but say in your heart there is no God. Uh, in your consciousness, in your desires and anxieties and ups and downs. So even if something looks sensible, but God is not in the frame, then that's actually foolish. And we see something like this happen in the story in 1 Samuel 13 today. So we're going to step through the story pretty quickly and then uh, come back and think about this idea of foolishness and what looks sensible a little more. Uh, there should be an outline uh, coming up on the screen for you uh, to follow along uh, in absence of a printed outline. So if you've got your notebook or your paper there, uh, you'll see where we're going on the screen in just a moment. But uh, open back up to 1 Samuel 13, page 230. 39 uh, verse 1 Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years uh, now there is some complexity behind the numbers in that first verse which I'm happy to talk about with you later but that sentence really starts uh, the official account of Saul's reign as king and so it's worth remembering what we've learned about Israel's king's role in the last chapters as we come to this chapter the king of God's people above all had to be a wise king one who listened to God uh, let's see how uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Saul goes with this as he, this official account begins. Saul gathers uh, an army, uh, which sounds positive. He splits them into two camps, one with him at Michmash, one at Gibeah. And the Philistines have an outpost, uh, which is actually within Israel itself at Gibeah or, or Geba, which could be either nearby or the same place. Uh, so in verse three, this outpost is attacked 
And the news gets back to the Philistines. It's kind of like prodding a, a beehive with a, with a stick and running away. So the Israelites assemble and the Philistines uh, swarm in. And the, the Philistines have these massive forces, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. And there they are. They come to Michmash, the very place that Saul has just left with his relatively tiny force. And so it's no wonder that the Israelites started to go and hide and run away. No wonder that the troops who stayed at Gilgal were quaking with fear. It says there in verse 7. And so have a look um, then at verse 8. Saul waits seven days for Samuel. He waits seven days. Why wait? We uh, heard a little uh, before from Tamar, but Saul has remembered uh, what Samuel, uh, the prophet, God's mouthpiece, has told him back in chapter 10, when Samuel first told him that he was going to be the leader. So if you'd like, flick back a couple of pages to chapter 10. Um, back then, uh, Samuel gave Saul three signs to encourage him, and then he told him to do two things. Uh, so have a look uh, down there at verse 7. He says, these signs are going to happen. Once these signs are fulfilled, these things happen, then do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So to hear the two things he was to do after the signs were fulfilled, the first one was, do whatever your hand finds to do. And the second one was, go down to Gilgal and wait for seven days for further instructions. And you might remember um, when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago that doing whatever you, your hand finds to do was a way of Samuel saying, Saul, attack the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. That's where the last sign is going to be. Attack the Philistines and start bringing rescue to the Israelites. But Saul didn't do that at the time, which was strange. Now, though, through Jonathan, Saul has attacked this outpost. And it seems that Saul's mind has clicked into gear and he's gone, right, the next step is to wait for Samuel at Gilgal. And so Saul waits. He's listening to what God's prophet has told him. That's, that's sounding good. But as the seventh day arrives and Samuel still hasn't arrived, Saul takes things into his own hands. He said, uh, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And we're back in uh, chapter 13 now in verse 9. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Uh, so Saul probably at this point is quite relieved. Uh, Samuel has finally arrived. Um, he's been doing his best on, on his own. And now Samuel's here. He'll know what to do next. So he goes out to greet Samuel, but you can kind of see the smile on his face uh, sort of starting to disappear as he hears Samuel's words to him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul's a bit taken aback at this uh, kind of cold greeting, but he explains what he's done, which seems really reasonable to him. He says, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought... Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. That sounds pretty sensible, right? Pretty reasonable, pretty respectful to God even. He wants to seek the Lord's favor. After all, where is Samuel anyway? 
But then you come to these crushing words from Samuel, having listened to Saul's excuses. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And Samuel goes on then to tell Saul uh, the consequences that his dynasty is not going to be established, that instead God's going to put someone else in charge after him. And then Samuel's gone. He leaves the deflated Saul there with this tiny army, which was it's only now a fifth of what he had to start with, which was even small then compared to the Philistines. And even worse, at this point, Samuel is headed off into the distance. He's the one who was supposed to give the next instruction, was supposed to tell Saul what to do. And then off into the distance walks this man and with him the answers, God's words. It's depressing. Now, on the first glance, it seems like the reaction to what's happened is disproportionate to what Saul's done. I mean, he just, he just started the sacrifice for Samuel because he wasn't there. That's until you think uh, carefully about the key thing that the king of God's people was supposed to do. Listen carefully to God. That was what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to wait seven days, not do anything until uh, Samuel arrived. And then... God's prophet was going to tell him what to do next. The command of God was to, to wait for the next command. I just think what the reality of this situation is for Saul. Saul has been given this amazing role of working with God himself, the God of the universe, of helping carry out his good plans for his people and for the world as leader of his people. This is the, 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 the offer that Saul has in front of him. It's, a, it's an amazing, like, invigorating kind of idea. And though Saul can't see it in that moment, in his untrusting frame of reference, the truth is at that moment, Samuel's actually moments away from him. The truth is that the Philistines are in the palm of God's hand, that those uh, Soldiers who are fleeing, they're actually the misguided ones, that God is on Saul's side, that God longs for Saul to love him, to listen. But while technically still believing in God's existence at that point, which Saul certainly did, he doesn't listen. He says in his heart, there is no God. As far as I'm concerned in this decision that I'm making, there is no God. It's foolishness. This is not the kind of thing, the kind of king that God's people need. So let's take a closer look at how foolishness seems sensible. And I think this passage gives us, I guess, three kind of different stages that go into an anatomy of foolishness, so to speak. Three different stages. Let's have a look at them. Pressure from surrounding circumstances. That's like stage one. Stage two, insecurity and doubt kind of growing into, uh, in terms of whether trusting God is wise. And then number three, taking matters into your own hands. Now, as we think about these in Saul, start to think about how you can relate about where you can see parallels in your own life. As this first element, uh, pressure from the surrounding circumstances. I mean, Saul He's being surrounded by a much stronger enemy. He's outnumbered. He's outgunned. Later in the chapter, we learn that none of the Israelites, except for Saul and Jonathan, actually have weapons. The rest of them have farm tools because the Philistines have kind of got this blacksmith cartel going on. The Philistines, meanwhile, have chariots. His army is slowly abandoning him and hiding. 
He's in this new scenario, only recently made king. He's sort of probably not experienced in these things. He's probably not filled with confidence. This, this, this is a high pressure situation. People are asking him, what, what, what are you going to do? Why are we still waiting? The pressure's closing in on Saul. You can see it. So you can see how this second element of the anatomy develops insecurity and doubt. You can see how it starts to grow. He wants to listen to God. There he is. He's there at Gilgal and, and there he is waiting. Right, waiting's hard. Even waiting for 30 seconds sometimes, it, it feels like forever. He's waiting seven days. It must have felt like an eternity. And as the weeks rolled on, it's sort of, you know, more people are asking him questions, more of his armies melting away. I think perhaps, perhaps I heard Samuel wrong. Perhaps Samuel was, maybe he was speaking metaphorically. Perhaps Samuel has forgotten. Maybe God doesn't want me to succeed after all. Maybe God doesn't want the best for me. God's words, they seem so unrealistic. What would a reasonable person do here? You know, other kings, they're not waiting for random old men to arrive before they do anything. God's word, it's out of step culturally. What, what about common sense? So you can see that the doubt and insecurity and the wisdom of trusting God's words grows. And so then comes the moment when Saul chooses to act. He chooses to take things into his own hands. The men are starting to scatter. He was so close to doing what God had said. But now all of a sudden waiting becomes impossible. He's overwhelmed by that insecurity and that doubt. He needs to do something to act, to take control of the situation, a concrete step, take a bite of that fruit, to take matters into his own hands. Actually, he thinks... I know better. I, I'm wiser than God's word right now. I did, I did try that. I, I, I've tried it, but it didn't work. Right? Saul offers up the burnt offering. And just as he does, Samuel arrives. The timing's excruciating. What have you done? asks Samuel. Samuel says, You have done a foolish thing. He didn't keep God's command and he wasn't bothered about waiting for God's next command. He didn't trust what God had said. Now, does that kind of anatomy of foolishness, does that sound familiar to you at all? It sounds quite familiar to me. Now, perhaps it's when you feel the pressure of setting things right when you've been sinned against, uh, to vindicate yourself, to come across strong. Now, you've clearly been wronged and you, you feel that bristly righteousness within, within you. You know that you've been unfairly treated. Everyone you talk to about it is on your side, feeding into how badly you've been treated. God says, keep forgiving. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God says, don't slander. But you wonder, will, will God really repay? Will he really remember this? Will he set this right? Jesus' return, that seems like so far in the future. So you take things into your own hands. You, you harbor some hatred. You take the opportunity to, to make that person suffer a little bit, to get what they deserve. You say things about them to, to others. That's what other people would do in this situation. That's the advice you're getting. It seems like very reasonable, common sense. But your frame of reference is wrong. You've done a foolish thing. What about the pressure to keep kind of doing more and more things? Uh, the, the pressure kind of closes in uh, to, to do all the you know, different responsibilities and demands on our time. Uh, 
packing days full up to the brim. Sometimes we've um, packing them full of work things, sometimes leisure things, uh, but the pressure to kind of not waste time, not miss out. Now God says, rest in me. He says, spend time with me, meditate on my word. It's good for you. But when there's pressure, do we believe that word, rest in me? There's doubt, there's, there's insecurity. Wouldn't it be more, I guess, tangible, more, more sensible, more practical to just you know, tick a few th more things off the list? And so we take matters into our own hands. And we skip over time with God again and we think, well, uh, that's, that's common sense, right? You've got the wrong frame of reference. You've done a, a foolish thing. I'm not sure whether those examples or another one that you're thinking of um, hits you this morning. I think as we think about it, like it's obvious that um, we often have been fools in that sense many times. And each of us uh, continues to be foolish in this way. We need some way or someone to listen properly for us. And so back in uh, chapter 13, this is what Saul needs as well. Have a look at verse 14. Samuel says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now this phrase, after his own heart, I think primarily means the man of God's choosing, uh, the one God's heart is set on, rather than how we'd commonly use the phrase to suggest a man who chooses to follow God. See, the leader who would take over from Saul in time, uh, the one whose God, God's heart was set on, was David. David, who, well, he did listen to God at times, but he also disobeyed the Lord's commands in, in ways that actually seemed far worse than Saul's. He committed adultery. He committed murder. After one failure, David himself says, I have done a very foolish thing. He too was a, a, was a fool and he knew it. He wrote those lines that we looked at earlier. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And yet in these kings, we see the story developing. What we need is certainly not a, a king like the people choose. That's Saul. We need a king who God has chosen and set his heart on like David. But we need more. We need one who sets his heart on God, too, who wisely listens. Now, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son who I love. God set his heart on Jesus. We heard in that reading from Luke about how Jesus listens to his father. Now, just think of that second temptation as an example. The pressure is on him. Right? Satan says, essentially, you can have all these kingdoms. Uh, you can be the ruler of, of the world. And you won't have to go through suffering. You won't have to go through death if you worship me. Jesus is hungry. He's exhausted. He's no doubt thinking about the path ahead of him. There's pressure there, pressure to cave in. But Jesus doesn't become insecure. He doesn't at that point uh, fear that God has abandoned him. And though he's tempted to take things into his own hands, he doesn't do it. He listens. In fact, he quotes God's words in response. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
So Jesus did listen. That's what Saul couldn't do. That's what David couldn't do. That's what uh, we can't do. It's what Jesus does. And so our immediate need again and again is to acknowledge our foolishness and trust him. To be found in him, to be found in his obedience. And so as we think about this anatomy of foolishness, as we see ourselves in it, we praise God. We, we praise him that despite our foolishness, he, he sets his heart on us because we're in Jesus. And then when we do find ourselves in situations like Saul's, as we often do, we know that we're not left alone. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has been there and he's, he's done that. Jesus helps us. We're in a better place than Saul. We're not left all alone. Now, when pressure closes in around us, maybe, just, just maybe, we can trust that the pressure is not going to crush us because Jesus has already been crushed for us. We know that. When our natural insecurities bubble up to the surface, maybe, just maybe, empowered by God's spirit, we'll grow to, to, to let go of those insecurities and find our security in him. And when we're tempted to take things into our own hands, to, to make some concrete solutions, even when God's way does not seem like wisdom to the world, doesn't seem like common sense, we'll realize more and more that his words are actually good. They're actually meant for our good, that he is actually for us because we can see the good that he's done in offering the son after his own heart to die for us and to rise again. And maybe, just maybe, empowered by his spirit, at that point, we listen. We believe in our heart that there is a God, a God who, who wants good for us. Let's pray to him and ask him to help us with that. Our Father, we thank you um, that you do speak and that your words, they bring life, that they're good for us. And we're sorry for when we don't listen. Uh, we thank you that you've given us Jesus, the one you set your heart on and the one who listens to you. Lord, help us trust him. And Lord, when we feel pressure, when we feel uh, insecurity and doubts about your goodness, please help us trust you and know that there is a God and he is good. Amen.